Before we get into the message, I just wanted to say one more thing. I have had opportunity to reflect on a lot of things in the last year or so, and I feel like I am still in a process of thinking through certain topics and trying to understand what God would say about them, and so I am more than happy to have conversations with people about different things in terms of how it affects the way that we do a particular thing in one of our services or what um, the effectiveness or helpfulness of a particular way of doing things uh, at the church. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is if any of you want to have a conversation about something, I want you to come talk to me because um, I... I don't have all the answers. God does, and if we study his word, we'll find them, but um, it's a learning process along the way for all of us, and for me included. So, To the passage this morning, think back to when you were a child and your parents were talking about something you don't understand. My mom thought she had pulled one over on me when she kept talking about the Yidnak with my dad. She didn't realize quite how much I loved words because she had pushed me to read when I was really little. And I turned that one over and over in my mind until I realized, oh, that's candy spelled backwards. Even as adults, sometimes we're at a loss to understand something. Not because of unfamiliar words, so much as ideas that are unfamiliar or strange to us. Uh, recently, we had the opportunity to tour a robot factory with the kids. And seeing everything was fascinating, but we didn't understand all the ins and outs. And it wasn't so much a not understanding all the jargon or the lingo, like that sort of idea, but more just because we were unfamiliar with what was going on. If we had become engineers or some other uh, background and then employees at that place, then we would have a better understanding of how everything fit together. But if we were just intrigued by something like there was a robot that was turning this heavy weight this way and that way for testing. If we just came and we looked at it and we're like, well, that's really fascinating, but we didn't seek to understand it, we never would really get more about what was going on in that particular place. In our passage today, we have several examples of Jesus teaching in parables. And these short stories and word pictures took ideas from everyday life and pointed the more important realities that Jesus was teaching. However, these stories had at least two purposes. For the disciples, those closest to Jesus, the stories provoked questions which Jesus willingly answered as he explained his meaning. For the crowds in particular, and to some extent the religious leaders who were rejecting and ignoring his teaching, the parables did not explain but more often hid the truth that they were unwilling to accept. When I say something like Jesus' parables hid truth from the crowds, I don't want you to hear me saying Jesus was lying to them. Perhaps I could illustrate it this way. Let's say your friend was starting a new hobby, and you want to help him out. So you gave him some suggestions. You said, what about this? And maybe consider this thing. And have you looked at this over here? And if he ignores all of your attempts to explain those things, to get him steered the right direction as far as equipment or technique or where to go or all of those sorts of things, <clears throat> 
Are you going to keep telling him more of that? I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to stop talking about all those things. And if there's a group of four or five of you, you might still have a conversation about those things. But the one that's stubbornly refusing to listen, you're not going to direct the conversation directly toward him because he doesn't want to hear it and he's not going to benefit from it. You're not lying to him. You're not deliberately hiding anything from him by um, avoiding him. But you're having a conversation and you're not seeking to explain it to him because he doesn't want it anyway. In an even greater sense, Jesus continues speaking truth even though the crowds are not interested so much in his preaching as they were in the signs and wonders that he performed. Some of the crowds would eventually listen, like his half-brother James who came to believe in him after his death. Some of the things would make more sense as the disciples looked back on different things that unfold throughout his ministry. But for those who kept going their own way and refusing to listen, the parables were, as one commentator says, spiritual tests that separate those who understand and believe from those who do not. Even more, the parables paralleled the teaching ministry of the prophets, especially Isaiah, as a sign of judgment for the unbelief of the people. Like in those centuries before, God's people didn't want to hear God's word. And yet Mark 4 teaches us that we need to follow Jesus by listening to and understanding his word. First of all, listen to Jesus' word. We see this in verses 1 through 12. The crowd gathers to hear him teach in verses 1 and 2. He goes to teach by the sea. Such a large crowd gathers that he gets into a boat. This is not the first time we've seen this idea. Verse 9 of chapter 3, he, sold the, he told the disciples a boat should stand ready because of the crowds. They would not crowd him. The people are eager to hear him. There's a huge crowd gathered and um, they were pressing in so the people couldn't, the disciples and Jesus couldn't even eat. We saw that in uh, chapter 3, verse 20. And so when he goes out to teach again, he has this boat ready and he goes out on the boat and he sort of uses the boat as his pulpit to teach the people. He teaches them with a parable. He teaches them many things, but Mark highlights this one for them. He speaks of four soils. The sower is the one who's going out to plant the crop, and there are four places on which the crop, the seeds, fall. In the first soil, the birds eat the seed. In the second soil, the rocky ground, the new plants withered away in the sun because they didn't have enough roots. In the third soil, the thorns and weeds choked out the plants so no crop came. In the fourth soil yielded a crop or a fruit of 30 and 60 and 100 times. What was his admonition? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to what Jesus is saying. The disciples, not just the twelve, verse 10, it's important to notice his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. Sometimes I think we have the idea that just the twelve are the ones who are hearing the explanation, but there's more than just that group. There are others who want to hear and understand what he's saying. They want to know what the parable meant. I would argue that they were true followers because they tried to understand, not just listen. They didn't hear the story and say, well, that's a nice story about things that we're familiar with. Okay, great, move on with the day. When are you going to do another miracle? They wanted to understand what Jesus was doing. So he reveals to them the mystery of the kingdom, verse 11. There's this, this concept of those who are inside and those who are outside. Those who want to hear and those who just continue to marvel at what's happening, but don't really want to be involved, don't really want to understand, don't really want to follow Jesus. 
There's parallel accounts with this in Matthew 13 and Luke 8. But I also wanted to highlight for you a few verses uh, that are kind of cross-references. John chapter 12, verse 40. Let me read that for you. He says there, For this reason, uh, let me start in chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophets, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So Jesus continues his teaching ministry, and there continues this pattern of unbelief by the people, and we see that in all of the Gospels, including the Gospel of John. We see a similar response and use of this passage from Isaiah in the words of Paul at the end of Acts. Paul comes, or Paul is at the house where he's under house arrest. The Jews show up. He's explaining to them, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. That was Paul's response toward the end of his ministry there in Rome. Jesus here, though, is talking about a time well before Paul comes and and uses the passage from Isaiah to apply to that situation. But here he's making the same point that Paul would make there, and that is this. Lack of understanding is a sign of unbelief. If someone is proclaiming truth and someone keeps not getting it, there is a lack of understanding that is a sign of unbelief. And he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9. And when we studied through the book of Isaiah, you probably remember the context. The people are all excited about the threat of enemies attacking them and what will happen and what's going to go on. And he says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses without people, land utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We see this throughout the book of Isaiah. There is a a desire of the people to hear things other than the message of the prophet. Chapter 30, verses 8 through 11. Go and write on a tablet before them 
and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Why does Jesus use this passage in this place to explain the reason for using the parables to the people of Israel? Why does he quote it in verse 12? Because he's saying the same lack of understanding that happened in Isaiah's day was happening right then. The same lack of understanding that Paul would encounter when he turns instead to the Gentiles continue to happen with the people of God. Paul explains more about this in Romans chapter 11, that there will be a day when the majority or even all of those who are part of the people of Israel at that time will turn to God in wide-scale repentance and understand finally all the things that have been rejected for so long. But just before the exile, and in the days of Jesus, and in the days of the apostle, and even to the present day, there are so many who are blinded away from the truth of who Jesus is and what he, came, what he came to reveal. The first part here of chapter 4, I think, shows us that you can't be a follower if you don't even listen to Jesus' word. <clears throat> but true followers of Jesus seek to understand his word, not just to hear and go away unchanged. There's the two passages in James that I think tie in very well to what Jesus is saying here. The first is, the one who looks into the mirror and goes away and does nothing about what is perceived in the mirror, the word of God has no profit for such a person. But then there's also the verse that I think we're not as familiar with, but is also in James chapter 1, where he talks about receiving the implanted word, that the word of God is like a seed that's planted and bears fruit, and the one in whom it is planted, it has this change, it has this effect. What does that look like? The second main point from the passage, follow Jesus, not just by hearing his word, listening to his word, but by understanding his word. He says in chapter thir- or verse 13 of chapter 4, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The parable of the soils was key to understanding parables. Now, sometimes when we hear something like it's a key to understanding the parables, we think it's some sort of like hidden code, right? Because... There's been a number of these sorts of things that you might encounter in a Christian bookstore or if you watch videos on YouTube or read different articles online. If you, if you go to this verse and you count this many words, you'll get this word. And then also this ties into this idea. So you go to this verse and you count this many words or how many letters are in the word and it reveals this hidden meaning. That's not what I'm talking about. There is not a Bible code, a mystical thing associated with numbers. Do numbers have significance in the Bible? Yes. 40 has association with testing, right? Because the people in the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness, all those sorts of things, right? 3 has a a significance associated with Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus is in the tomb for three days. There are numbers that have significance, But it's not some sort of hidden code. The numbers that have significance are pretty clearly laid out because they get used over and over and over again. We're not supposed to be superstitious or 
and and it's not it's not strictly speaking this, but there is a a concept called Gnosticism that says the path to God is through hidden knowledge, and only the very wise and very clever will find it. The problem with that is Jesus says you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if the clever are the only ones that really know God, why did he say you have to be like a little child? So that when I say that this parable is a key to the other parables, here's what I'm saying. If we don't understand the significance of a response to Jesus in his word, we're not going to be in a position to understand the rest of his teaching. Your response to Jesus determines whether you will get what he is saying. Jesus in the parable, and this is the part that the people didn't understand, and for that matter, perhaps the disciples didn't either until he explained it. The parable is not just a nice story. It's saying here are different responses people have to the word that I'm sharing with them. What's the first response? You hear it and immediately you get distracted and it's taken away by Satan. We see that in verse 15. And that means no fruit, right? Because if a bird comes, if you're sowing seed in your garden, a bird comes and eats the seed, what are you not going to get? You're not going to get corn. You're not going to get beans. You're not going to get pumpkins. You're not going to get what you're planting. If the birds eat the seed, the seed is gone. It's not going to bear fruit in the place in which it's sown. There were people who would hear God's word and immediately Satan would tempt them and distract them and take them away from what Jesus was saying and they would never become followers of Jesus or at least not in that moment. The second soil, verse 16, is those who at first had joy. This is a a good word, an important truth. I want to hear this. I want to know more about it. It says they're only temporary when affliction or persecution arises, immediately they fall away. This is the big danger for us in the way that we present the gospel to people. If we only present the gospel as, you have a problem, Jesus will fix it, and your life will be better, we leave out all the part about the fact that life can become immensely harder if we follow after God, and then people are surprised by it. They say, I didn't sign up for this. You didn't tell me about all of this. What in the world is going on with this? There are people who encounter difficulty and turn aside. I think the irony is Mark perhaps would have counted himself in this group, right? Not that he necessarily stopped following God, but he was going with Paul and Barnabas, and then he turned back. I think sometimes we've seen these first three groups as sort of like an unchangeable circumstance. In other words, if someone hears the word and Satan takes it away, if someone hears the word, is joyful about it, but then encounters difficulty and turns aside, or the third one, many things of the world choke out the desire to follow God, that there's never any opportunity after that for that person to return back to God. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But he's saying in the moment, if this is your response, and shortly after this is your response... You're not going to produce fruit, and you should not be confident that you're walking with me, and something has to change for you to be in a right relationship with God. The third one there. There is an initial appearance, and in fact a reality of beginning to follow and walk after God, but then there is the anxieties and cares of the world. This can take many forms. It can be 
um, questions like, if I follow God, what does this mean for my job and how I'll be able to provide for my family? And if there becomes a conflict between following after Jesus and something that I'm doing for work, if it, if it is, uh, if that is what it means, maybe it's not worth it to follow Jesus. Or if I follow Jesus, I read through the Bible and I hear God's word and it seems like a lot of people who follow after Jesus are not the rich and well-to-do and have everything the way that they would want. And really that's my goal. I want to be rich. And so if I follow Jesus, I can't be rich. And so again, maybe it's not worth it to follow after Jesus. We desire other things more than God that crowds out following Jesus. There will be no fruit. But in the fourth soil, those here understand and truly follow. They accept it and bear fruit. Some have made here a comparison to the parable of the talents or other things that Jesus taught, and I think there's probably a fair comparison. Not everybody is going to maximize the output of the fruit that is produced in their lives by God's work, and yet that doesn't mean that person is lacking in following after God. God has given people different capacities. Some people he saves when they're 80. Some people he saves when they're 5. There's, there's a wide range of what good soil looks like and the fruit that God produces, but it's still fruit. I think it would be possible for us to look at this parable and assume that Jesus is saying something like, make yourself, make yourself receptive. Be the good soil. But he's not doing that. He's not saying, be the good soil. He's saying, evaluate your response to me. Am I the good soil? And the difference in that is very important because I think there is this ongoing tendency in the human heart to make ourselves acceptable to God. So if we see this passage and we're like, I should be the good soil, then we're going to say, by my own effort, I can get myself to a point where I can receive God's word and then bear fruit. And the reality is there's nothing that you and I can do to get ourselves in a spot to be ready to receive God's word in a way that produces fruit apart from God's work in our hearts. So he's not saying try to be the good soil. He's saying, ask yourself, how do I respond to God's word? If Satan's temptations or persecution or affliction or things of this world draw you away from following Jesus, you cannot, at least in that moment, consider yourself a true follower of Christ. Probably not all of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, but for those who have, let me give you an example of three characters that tie into what Jesus is saying here. There's pliable in the beginning of the story, right? He gives up after he falls into the muck. Like he just starts down, falls into the slough of despond, he's like, I'm out. Then there's buy-ins, who only wants the easy path. If it's raining, if I have to walk too far, not interested. Then there's the people of Vanity Fair who are so distracted by the things that are attractive and beautiful of this world that they don't want to follow on the path. But if you pass the test of temptation, hold steady through persecution, and say no to the things of this world, you will bear fruit in following Jesus. 
not making yourself into the good soil, but evaluating your response to Jesus and saying, what is it that prevents me from bearing fruit and walking after him? So which one are you? Do you pass these tests? If you say, I don't pass these tests, I think a good response to this passage would be to cry for God's mercy that you would receive the word truly and follow Jesus because he's going to have to do the work to get you to a point to receive it. You can't do that work. You can't, and this is where um, sometimes we talk about revival. To the extent that we see revival or we fall into the trap of seeing revival as a manufactured response to the word of God, uh, there was a, a feature of some of the revival um, services and activities that have happened in the last 100, 150 years. And, and you know, people want to say, well, this thing about modern worship or that thing about modern church services, those things manipulate people's emotions and produce a particular response. The reality is, to the extent that anything is crafted to produce a response, that's not genuine that's a huge problem because there were people in those revival meetings who who would sort of get worked up into an emotional frenzy and they would come and and then they would they would see in their walking the aisle and in their praying the prayer and in the depth of the feeling they had in that moment i must be now walking with god because i had this experience We can't manufacture a walk with God. We can't manipulate people into a relationship with Jesus. So, why don't we do invitations at our church? The historical reason is it wasn't a thing that people did in churches consistently in the way that we might have seen it done until, as far as I know historically, someone like Charles Finney who said, if we can manipulate the variables, we can produce a consistent response. And that's an ungodly way to look at how to use God's word. Now, there is a difference between not having an invitation and not calling people to wrestle with what God's word says. There should always be a call to say, what has God said and what, how should we respond to it? But that's different from saying, it looks like physical motion. Sometimes it does, but the physical motion, I think, usually in response to the conviction of God's word, should not be to come down here. I think it should be to go walk to the person you need to deal with something about or to kneel in prayer to God and deal with him about something. That's, I think, the response that we're supposed to have, the motion that we're supposed to have, not a walking down an aisle, something that we can look back on and just see as a checkpoint and say, I know that I am with God because blank 10 years ago. Jesus wants followers, not followed. It's not just one point in time, it's an ongoing process. It's not something we can manufacture, but if we have a sense that we look at these tests of temptation, persecution, affliction, worldliness, and we say, I don't feel like I passed those tests in my response to God's word, and we cry out for God's mercy, I would remind you that there is hope. 
Going back to Pilgrim's Progress, what happens with Hopeful? He's in Vanity Fair for a long time until he sees Faithful get martyred, and then he starts walking down the Pilgrim Way back toward God. Paul was changed by the martyrdom of Stephen, even though it took a long time before God changed his heart. You too could be impacted by the life of a believer near you if you've never really begun to follow Jesus. But I think most, if not all of us here today, would say, I follow after Jesus. And if we can genuinely say, I pass these tests, then we're in a place to learn more and to bear fruit. And for those people, Jesus shares more parables. He shares them with all the people, but they're only beneficial for the ones who are actually wanting to follow after him, wanting to understand, wanting to bear fruit. He gives the parable of the lamp. What's the significance of that? Is the lamp meant to be hidden? Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. I think sometimes we look at this passage and we think about the way that Paul uses this concept and he says the sins of some men are revealed after they die, something along those lines, in, in I think uh, one of his letters to Timothy or Titus. But I don't think Jesus is using it in that way. I think Jesus is talking here about his own ministry. What was the nature of Jesus' ministry up to this point? Don't tell people who I am. Don't go publicize the miracle that I've done. Don't proclaim that I'm the Son of God, he says to the demons in chapter 3. It's not the time for it to be revealed, but there will be a time for it to be revealed. Jesus' ministry would be revealed in the right moment. There's the idea of the measure in verse 24. By your standard of measure will be measured to you, more will be given you besides. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. He's not talking about going down to the market and trading money or whatever else for grain and back and forth and all those sorts of things. And it would potentially have been easy for the people to think he's talking about some transaction that's going on in the marketplace. He's saying there are people who are evaluating other people this kind of ties in with the passage where he says, don't judge lest you be judged by the same standard you will be judged. There are people who are evaluating other people and trying to assess their connection with God. And Jesus says, instead of doing that here, he's saying, think about how you're evaluating yourself. Think about your response to what God has given you. If there is a positive response, receive it and more would be given. If there is a rejection of what God has, says even what you have will be taken away. Is that what happens with the people of Israel? They reject the Messiah and the gospel message is taken away and given to other groups of people who are willing to receive it. What about the parable of the harvest? Verse 27 uh, says the seed sprouts and grows how he does not know it produces crops the blade the head the mature grain in the head when the crop permits he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come how is the kingdom of God what's the point of comparison to what's being said here the harvest time was not yet but would, but would be revealed apart from man's efforts he does not know but the harvest would come nonetheless if we look at the life and ministry of Jesus the people wanted to force um, the ministry of Jesus to be what they had imagined it would be, deliver us from the Romans, make our lives better, whatever else. 
Jesus says that's not what's coming. The, the, the preaching of the gospel is going to produce a harvest in the right moment. It's not something that you can produce. It's the work of God. But it is certain and it will come. And that's continued to be true. And he says that even further, verses 30 through 32. The, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Small seed grows to a large shrub. Some people have said, well, this isn't strictly true because the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed and the mustard tree isn't the largest tree. The point is not, in an absolute sense, it's the smallest seed that has ever existed and it's the largest tree you could ever find in the whole world. The point is, very small seed grows to a very large thing in an unexpected way. You don't put something in the ground and expect it to be this massive thing and yet over the course of time it grows into that. That's what's happening with the kingdom of God. People proclaim the gospel. People are added to the kingdom of God and it goes from a handful of people the 12 and a few others to 120 around the time of Jesus' death to thousands of people in a very short period of time. This explosive growth of the church in anticipation of the kingdom work that God is doing in the world is not something that people would anticipate. And it's not something that the people listening would have necessarily understood at the moment that he's saying it, but he explains it to the disciples and then looking back on it, we can see how Jesus' descriptions of the kingdom of God correspond to what actually took place. Jesus continues teaching in verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he was speaking the words so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable. So the crowds got parables. The true disciples got truth explained. He was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Why did Jesus share these parables? To illustrate the nature of the kingdom. These illustrations would make no sense to those who rejected the kingdom. And even for the disciples, sometimes they didn't make sense until after the fact. It made no sense, for example, for Jesus to hide his true nature when even the demons were proclaiming, you're the son of God. If he was the king the people wanted, publicity is the answer. You want a popular movement? Make yourself more well known. But that was not God's purpose. The idea of the measure wouldn't make sense to people. Why should the one with more be given more? Shouldn't the one who has more share it with the one who doesn't have any? But he's not talking about God's blessing in terms of, of resources. He's talking about God's blessing in terms of response to his word. In God's kingdom, faithful work brings more opportunity for faithful work and laziness brings condemnation. The harvest illustration would seem obvious but to see it in reference to the ministry and life of Jesus himself or of the long-term unfolding of God's work until the end times was beyond the recognition of the people. The mustard seed idea would also seem obvious, but Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, not a mere gardening anecdote. The crowds continued following but not getting the point. The disciples didn't fully get the mysteries Jesus was revealing, but they learned enough that even if they didn't understand it in the moment when Jesus first explained it, they understood it at the end of his ministry. Now we see that you are speaking plainly on the night that Jesus is betrayed. After he dies, now we understand what you meant by except a grain of wheat falls in the ground and died, as in those sorts of illustrations. So how do we apply what Jesus did here to our own ministry opportunities, to our own lives? I think it's important for us to remember that you and I are not Jesus. We don't see people's hearts and our words don't save them. Our assessments can be wrong. Often we think someone is a true follower who isn't 
or we exclude someone from the possibility of being a true follower who is but doesn't match our expectation. We need to remember Jesus' tests of true followers. Someone who is not quickly distracted away from God's word. Someone who doesn't run away from God at the first sign of difficulty. Someone who's not entangled in the cares of this world. Our tests for evaluating those who are followers of Jesus tend to be religious checkpoints. Did you attend X number of services this month? Do you know chapter and verse in response to some issue that someone raises? Does your life look a particular way, neat, orderly, predictable? We need to make sure that we are looking at Jesus' tests instead of substituting our own. Or else we are going to say, well, this person is a believer who isn't, or this person isn't a believer who is. I said the point of these is to evaluate, not to try to change in and of yourself. Only God's power can change, but to evaluate. Are you distracted by Satan from God's word? Is your Christian life about Jesus or something else? Satan wants to distract you from Jesus to focus on religious activities. Could be inspirational quotes. We could substitute some popular saying that we might see on a plaque at a Christian bookstore for what the Bible actually says. It could be some idea in a Christian book. I'm not saying don't read Christian books. I'm saying there are a lot of books masquerading as Christian books that are Christian because they're sold by a so-called Christian organization and there's very little of the Bible in them and as a result, they distract us away from what God has said instead of pointing us to God's word. Good Christian books have God's word, references to God's word and drive us to look at God's word more they don't get us to say, wow, look at this author. Wow, look at focus on this idea. And we never even end up going back to the Bible because we feel like we have everything we need in the book. Now, it could be Christian music. Somebody could say, well, I listen to Christian music, so I must be a Christian. And I have a walk with God because I know all these songs and I sing them every day. I'm not saying Christian music is bad. But I'm saying... Your relationship with God is more than things that we think of as Christian. And, and rewind 150 years. Nobody has recorded music. Nobody has playlists. Nobody has things that sometimes we feel are essential to our walk with God. And if I don't have this, how can I walk with God? We have what we need in God's word. And the early church could be in the catacombs and running for their lives and still have a walk with God without any of these things that we feel like are essential to our walk with God. And so to go to the screw tape letters... The demon who's trying to train the younger demon, not that there's such a thing, but in the, the, the scenario that C.S. Lewis imagines, he says, if you can get the person to focus not on who God is, but on his concept of what God might be like, you've won. If you can get them distracted away from how God has actually described himself to a concept of what he would like God to be, you've won. And Satan does that, even for believers. Or, in an even worse sense, he can get us entangled in various sins. We can say, oh yeah, I walk with God. But there's some sin that deep down in our hearts we love and we're drawn away from God's word because, and it's kind of a truism, and I forget who said it, but it's been said that God's word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from God's word. Right? If we're sinning, 
You know what we don't want to do? We don't want to pray. We don't want to look at God's word. Because we don't want to talk to God because you know we're doing something wrong. And we don't want to read what he said because we'll be reminded that we're doing something wrong. And so sin takes us away from hearing God's word. Those are the moments when we most desperately need to talk to God and find forgiveness. And we most desperately need God's word to be reminded of what's true. But sometimes those are the moments that are hardest for us to get it. Evaluate your life. Are you distracted away from God's word as in the first example? Are you willing to follow God through difficulty as in the second example? Would you follow Jesus if it was harder? If you had to drive 50 miles to church, would you be committed to this local assembly? I'm not saying the building is the church. Hopefully that has been clear in a lot of the discussions we've had recently. The building is not the church. But is your commitment to God's people conditioned on how easy it is to be a part of things? If, and this is a reality for people in other country, if visiting a fellow believer could get you thrown in jail, There are situations going on in our world right now where if you go outside your home and you're a Christian, they will shoot you in the street. If your neighbors turned you into the government for praying or worshiping, like, well, yeah, that happened with Daniel and the Babylonian Empire. That doesn't happen today. It does happen today. Maybe not right here where you and I live, but it does happen in various places around the world. What is the threshold at which you'd say, I'm done following God because it's too hard? Think about the situation in which Jesus is saying, evaluate response to my word. Close-knit family groups, family business. You could be a fisherman, you could be a carpenter, you could be whatever. You start following Jesus, the passage I read from John said they would put you out of the synagogue. You're not part of the synagogue, that excludes you from being a part of family life and a part of work, which means now you have no money, which then leads into why there were all those things going on in the early church, why people had needs that had to be met and why other churches in turn had to help because eventually those people's resources ran out. But my point is to say, in the context of the first century, following Jesus cost you something. And for us, the threshold of of what we are willing to do in order to follow after Jesus can be very low. How seriously are you committed to Jesus? If God were to take away your job, would you still follow after him? If God were to take away someone you love, a child, a parent, a spouse, someone like that, how much could God strip away from your life before you would say, I'm done following him, this is too much? How much time do you spend with Jesus? To go to the third example. This is probably the one that I struggle with the most. The world is full of fascinating things. It's been a lot of hobbies and topics of interest. It's really tempting, and this is just for me. I don't know exactly how it is for you, but I think there's people like me in the group here today. Um, To get really excited about whatever it is. I decided I wanted to do woodworking. So I went and bought a bunch of woodworking tools. And then they sat in the garage for a year, and then I had to sell them all off because I realized there was a really steep learning curve to doing woodworking well and I'm good at putting up two by fours and not at making 
fancy decorative boxes or things like that. My point is to say, to the extent that we pursue whatever hobby that it is, and that then becomes a distraction from our walk with God, what about time for prayer? What about time for meditating on scripture? It can so easily be replaced by schemes of how to get more money to pursue some area of interest instead of following after God. Sometimes worldliness doesn't look like pursuit of hobbies. Sometimes it looks like absorbing the attitudes of the world around us. The world says work hard to get money, to retire, to enjoy life for yourself. I'm not saying don't retire. I'm not saying those of you who have are sinning against God. But the, if, if our idea of the ideal life is to get to a point where we don't have to minister to other people and we can just do whatever we feel like, sit on a beach, watch TV, go, you know, have no plan for the day, that's a worldly attitude, and we can all struggle with that. Maybe we say, I'm not driven by the desire to get to a point where I can live selfishly in retirement years or in when I just sort of achieve a certain level at my job or whatever else, but maybe you're driven by some kind of fear, and that can be a worldly attitude as well. What length will you go to in order to achieve security? What will you sacrifice? How does that reveal whether you're really trusting God? There's all those things in 1 Timothy about those who desire to get rich out of a fear of being poor, potentially, um, fall into all sorts of troubles and wander away from God. The irony is the more that we understand Jesus, the less we have to worry about the future. Doesn't he know when the sparrows fall? Of course he cares about his people. And so I think this passage calls us to evaluate where do we stand with Jesus? Are we distracted away from him? Are we discouraged by the difficulties of this life so that we say, I don't feel like I can trust God anymore? Are we caught up in worldly desire so that we have no time left to pursue after God? Or are we hearing God's word and saying by his grace no to temptation yes i will follow you even through hard moments and even though these things seem great they're not worth giving my life to when it comes to the things of the world i think another application for this passage is to realize that our job is to proclaim the truth god's truth becomes its own test for whether someone truly follows jesus um, I don't want us to hear a passage like this and say, well, Jesus spoke in parables, so that means we should use Christian jargon, and then that's the thing that makes the dividing line between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if we proclaim God's truth, those who want to hear God's, worth by, God's truth by God's grace will want more of God's truth, and those who don't won't hear it. Sometimes we step back and pray for those in stubborn unbelief. Sometimes we keep discussing God, but we're not really directing it at this person who doesn't want to hear God's word, but we, we keep having conversations about God nearby. And in time, maybe God uses that to bring them to salvation. We have to recognize that God's word divides between those who follow him truly and those who just hang around because they want something from God. This passage calls us to follow Jesus by listening to and understanding his word. It might seem unfair that Jesus talked in parables. It might seem like, why did he tell these people and not these people? But the emphasis in the passage 
is not on God's sovereign purpose, like it was when he called the disciples in a previous passage. It's on the response of people to the truth that God gives them. And Jesus says, look, here's a test case. Evaluate your response to me. Here's a parable. Here's an example. If your response to me is one of these three, you're not a true follower. If it's this one, you are. Keep learning. Keep following. Keep pressing after me. Follow Jesus by listening and understanding his word. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the the truth of this passage, it's I know it was a really hard thing, and I still feel like there's aspects of it I don't fully understand. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that we need to hear your word, but then also go beyond hearing your word and strive to understand it, and that the desire to understand it can be a good indication that we do actually have a relationship with you. I pray that's the case for all of us here today, that that we want to follow after you, we want to understand more about you, not so that we can say, here's all the things I know, but because the more that we know who you are, the more pleasing that we can be to you, the more that we will love you for the amazing things that are true about who you are, and the more we have to rejoice in as we look forward to exploring even more things over the course of our life and eternity. Lord, I pray that that would be our attitude toward you this morning. Not like the crowds who are quickly distracted and turned aside by persecution and loving the things of the world. Not like the religious leaders who hated the word because it was a threat to their power and authority over the people. But like the disciples who didn't really get it so much of the time, but they were trying to get it. So many times you rebuked Peter and others, and yet... They were willing to follow after you, even though it meant giving up things, and even though it meant not always knowing exactly what your purpose was, and even though it meant eventually them dying deaths that were difficult, but they knew and saw by your grace that it's worth it to follow after you. I pray that we would listen to your word and understand your word and see that as well for ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.